This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. I've mentioned before that when not at the microphone here at WGVU, I'm often in front of other microphones doing other things. One of my favorite gigs is to be an offstage announcer. They call it VOG, the voice of God. It's always a thrill to introduce people of note to an audience. And in my career, I've had the honor of saying... Ladies and gentlemen, Martin Short. Ladies and gentlemen, Ed Asner. Ladies and gentlemen, Jay Leno. One of my particular favorites, ladies and gentlemen, Betty White. But the crown of my career must have been when in 2003, I took a great big breath and said with an immense amount of pride, ladies and gentlemen, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, as the man of the hour walked on stage in Grand Rapids at the Van Andel Arena for an event sponsored by the World Affairs Council. I don't ever remember not being impressed with everything about him, his passion for justice, his disciplined life, his bubbling joy, which he shared without hesitancy. I recall someone I know who had the honor of actually being with Tutu and the Dalai Lama in the same space. He said they were actually tickling each other. Well, I'm thrilled today to be able to host the author of a new book entitled Desmond Tutu, a spiritual biography of South Africa's confessor. I'm speaking about the very Reverend Michael Battle, Ph.D. He has multiple degrees, all relating to theology and religious studies, from Duke University, Princeton Theological Seminary, and Yale. He was ordained a priest by Archbishop Tutu in 1993. Battle's clergy experience, in addition to his current church work, includes serving as vicar at multiple Episcopalian churches here in the United States and South Africa as well. He's the author of many books, including several focused on his mentor, Archbishop Tutu, currently appointed as the Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society and Director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York, we have with us Reverend Michael Battle. Hello, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. Certainly, certainly. Um, the first thing that uh, caught my eye with the book, which I enjoyed very much, is that you, you describe it as a spiritual biography. So what is a spiritual biography as opposed to any other kind of biography? Good question. I think it's just... Uh, notifying the reader what to expect, what to focus on. And in this particular case with Archbishop Tutu, it's unexpected um, for strange reasons, because it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that you would not think this to be the case. But Tutu is often seen as a political agent. Um, and even though he's an archbishop, folks have not really paid much attention to his spirituality. And I think it just has a huge impact on what he was able to accomplish and his monumental task against apartheid. 
You say in the book, without reserve, that he is a saint. And I'm curious, what does that mean in Anglicanism? Because I think oftentimes when uh, people talk about sainthood, they're talking about the paradigm that is used in the Roman Catholic Church. But I know that Anglicans have saints as well. But is is a saint in Anglicanism um, as formal a title as it is in uh, in Catholicism? And can you be recognized as a saint and still be on this earthly plane? Yes. Um, you know, Anglicanism, the Anglican Church, is the third largest um, Christian body on the planet. Um, so you have Roman Catholic and you have Eastern Orthodox. Anglicanism is a bit strange because it contains both um, Catholicism and Protestantism. And because of the Church of England's kind of crazy history, beginning with Henry VIII, um, it's carried with it both flavors, Catholic and Protestant. So what that means is that a saint in Anglicanism is not as formal a category. The fancy term is hagiography. To become a saint in the Anglican Church doesn't carry the hierarchical metrics that you have to establish before the Vatican, for example, names a person as a saint. And Anglicanism, basically, it's the, the local churches, provinces, and the liturgical bodies that basically name a person as a saint. And the saint is mostly used in terms of worship, for example, the lectionary or the lessons for Sunday morning a church service, that those lessons are called the lectionary, and they will be based on who the saint is. So you can imagine what kind of lessons would be associated with Archbishop Tutu. Certainly. And and so he can be recognized as a saint in the body, as opposed to in Catholicism, where you have to be dead for a while, at least. And you also have to have miracles ascribed to you. I'm, I'm assuming that that isn't part of sainthood in the Anglican Church. Right. Yeah. So in the Roman Catholic Church, you have to be dead at least for five years. And then they set up a commission to investigate if you've done the correct criteria of miracles and prayers said to you and those sorts of things. But not that's not the case in the Anglican Church. I do think, though, that most cases, those who are named saints um, have passed away first before they are actually named a saint. Not in the same amount of time that the Roman Catholic Church would have, though. Uh, let's talk about uh, the issues that uh, Archbishop Tutu had to uh, had had that were challenging to him, and of course, the probably the most the the greatest challenge of his life outside of anything spiritual or theological was the fight against apartheid. Uh, and I'd like to uh, for everyone to understand the religious underpinnings of apartheid. Many of us would would think that the apartheid was something devised in hell. But the people who did create it, actually, at least they told people that they were doing the Lord's work. How how did that happen? That's exactly right. Um, apartheid in Afrikaans literally means to be set apart. 
And that's also the literal definition of the word holy, to be set apart. And the architects of apartheid went to seminary. You know, the first president of um, the National Party uh, in South Africa was a seminarian who went to seminary and understood theology. And the terminology used to articulate an apartheid society was not accidental. And so they carried with it a theological, spiritual underpinning for the laws that set white people on the top of the heap. And also the Afrikaners were in a strange situation for those of us in the United States because not only were the Afrikaners in survival mode against black folks, um, which carried at least 12 different ethnicities, but the Afrikaners were in survival mode against the British. So there were two white identities in competition. And in such a survival mode, they developed a theology, a spirituality in which God was on their side as they went through what was called the Great Trek, and they moved through the tip of South Africa up into Africa, into the hinterland, and they saw themselves to be a kind of Israel, where God had chosen them as a holy people. You, um, I'm curious, and I realize this is complete speculation, but we know that the British, when they colonized other countries in uh, in Africa, in Asia, Australia, the South Pacific, they were not necessarily angels. By no means <laughs> no, were they angels. But do you suspect that if the British had won, is there any evidence to indicate that if the British had won rule over South Africa instead of the Afrikaners, that the black population would have survived any better? That is a really good question. I guess we would just have to see what the precedents were for the other colonies. Um, because, as you know, the, the, the famous axiom was that in the British Empire, the, the sun never set because it was just so you know, ubiquitous around the planet. If you look at places like Nigeria, you know, if you look at you know, some of the other, other places that you know, the English colonized, it's, it's not so easy to say that the struggle for in, independence was any easier. Um, the British did have a bit of a moral compass in terms of pulling back from slavery uh, just a little earlier than the United States. But for the most part, the British were occupying uh, many ethnicities, even naming them. Um, so it's it's not easy to say who was better, the English or the Afrikaners. I remember the English placed the Afrikaners in concentration camps at the turn of the 20th century. So the British were no more innocent at the end of the day. You use three words interchangeably in the book um, that I would suspect other authors would not. And these words are spiritual, mystical, 
and theological. I, I can imagine some very interesting conversations with fellow clerics uh, that you might have. Uh, <laughs> uh, tell me, how is it that you do that? Uh, I'll tell you the, the uh, foundation of my question is that theological, when I hear the word theological, I often think of uh, something very intellectual, something that is perhaps scripture-based, uh, uh, you know, the writings of great minds, and then mystical and spiritual, I can see a relationship there, where we're talking about deep, profound experiences with the divine that may, in fact, counter something that is theological. Yes, it's, it's... It's a little um, wordplay on semantics. Um, mysticism literally means, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a term for Christianity. It can be a term for for many religions. But in terms of the particularity of Christian mysticism, it's about becoming one with God. And spirituality is a word that um, became a popular word in the 70s in the United States, especially as Eastern religions were bringing in yoga and meditation. Um, Folks in the Western world saw that as actually a a benign word, spirituality. And then theology is usually understood as a disciplined way of talking about, thinking about, reflecting on God. And so for me, um, those are, I guess, in some ways important to try to distinguish those different meanings. But at the end of the day, I think the semantics of them all point to the same thing, and that's trying to understand and apply the presence of God uh, in your life. A theme that... Wait, before I even ask my next question, I would like to remind people that they are listening to WGVU-FM. The program is Common Threads. And I'm speaking today with the author of Desmond Tutu, a spiritual biography of South Africa's confessor. And that author is Reverend Michael Battle. So now I will ask the question that I had in mind. A constant theme that runs throughout the book is the three stages of mysticism, purgation, illumination, and union. So let's talk about those. And I realize that uh, this is a deep subject. We might not finish all three before the end of today's episode, but uh, we are inviting you back next week. So let's talk about uh, purgation. How does that play into the understanding of the mystic and, more specifically, how did it play into uh, Archbishop Tutu's life, or is playing into his life? Yeah, I think purgation comes from um, an early Christian writer named Dionysius, and he understood the way to become one with God through a threefold process, beginning with purgation. And purgation is not so much, you know, using soap to clean whatever needs, um, you know, the, the ability to be relieved of dirt or grime. Um, 
purgation is more about fire and how fire purifies. Um, for example, we need fire to be able to eat food, um, certain kinds of food. We need fire to be able to, um, you know, find our, ourselves in places that provide um, cleanliness and, and comfort in our homes. Fire is a, a powerful concept, especially in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, when Isaiah is trying to be in the presence of God, and angels come and put fiery tongs on his lips. Purgation for Tutu was similarly about a fire, and I place his, his beginning stages of ministry as purgative, because he was born into apartheid. Um, and apartheid became a formal category in 1948, but apartheid ever since the British and the Afrikaners were scrambling for that tip of Africa, it was uh, a system of apartheid based on race, um, on political and legal policies based on race. That's the simple definition of apartheid. And Tutu found himself in need of a cleansing of such a society that tried to normalize uh, who, was more, who was more important as a human being, and even placing theological descriptions on what that importance meant based on being white or black. So purgation for Tutu was the need to cleanse um, a normalcy of apartheid. Would this also have to do with his own racial identity? Uh, do you know how he felt growing up black? Uh, did the propaganda seep into his consciousness where he actually felt that he was inferior? Or was there always some, some guiding light that uh, was able to convince him that he was equal to uh, the white rulers? Yeah. I think a fish doesn't know it's wet, Fred. Um, and growing up in his early years, he wasn't really aware of a system that was totally against him, the, the apartheid system. And so that's why he said when a, a white English monk took off his hat and tipped it to his mom, you know, he realized this was a strange being. Um, and that was Trevor Huddleston, who affected Tutu's spirituality uh, in tremendous ways. But I think initially, you know, apartheid was such, you know, so much in the water that folks drank in South Africa at that time, both whites and blacks, so-called colored, those from the subcontinent of India, and other sorts of nationalities. It was in sort of the normalcy of the way that you understood yourself based on orbiting around white identity. Um, and it wasn't really in, in, until uh, Tutu was exposed to these radical English monks to expose 
the way the world should be. Yes, I was actually going to ask you about that particular monk that you mentioned, uh, Trevor. Uh, tell us about how uh, uh, Desmond Tutu ended up in the seminary, because it was because of this particular monk uh, who had just a tremendous influence on his on his life. Yeah, and um, Trevor Huddleston comes from a monastic society, an Anglican monastic society called the Community of the Resurrection, and um, they they saw the potential in the young uh, Desmond Tutu. Um, no doubt that they understood, um, based on his prowess with language, um, you know his his sense of humor, you know, his ability to um, want to be with monks, for example, to worship with them, they they realized the potential that um, that Tutu had, even as a as a young child. And so they groomed him. And similarly to Mahatma Gandhi, um, who who by the way had his epiphany in South Africa and his famous um, philosophy of civil disobedience, Satyagraha, was born in South Africa. That's just an aside. But Tutu was similar to Gandhi in that he went to London. Um, and then Gandhi had his epiphany in London and Tutu also. Um, he was in the headquarters of, you know, the Anglican Church there in London, and he as you know, and as your listeners know, when you travel um, to different places, you're able to understand your own identity based on the reference point of being in a strange land and different kinds of people. It helps you to see who you really are through the eyes of someone else. And Tutu had the same kind of epiphany when he was in England. Um, not that the, not that England was void of racism, but it was it was a lot more free for him to be there, um, and apartheid wasn't a structure there in England in the formal legal system, and that no doubt had a a, a huge influence on Tutu's call to see the way human societies could be, um, at least legally, not having in the Constitution an apartheid system. And Tutu eventually went back um, to South Africa to initially teach, and then they started to groom him in the institutional church to the point that he became the head of the Anglican Church in the province of Southern Africa. But I think Trevor Huddleston, Community of, Resur of the Resurrection, were really behind the grooming of Tutu's uh, career in the church. Was there any guarantee that after uh, Tutu completed his education and became ordained, that he would, in fact, go back to South Africa? Couldn't they have sent him to Scotland? <laughs> right. It's a good question. It's a good question, and, and as you know, um, there's a huge temptation for international students 
um, who go to the Western world to stay there. Um, yeah, and I think Tutu for sure wrestled with what that would mean, especially for his family and the material resources in the Western world, you know, educating children in the Western world. I'm sure that was a huge temptation for him. But as the Tutu started to rise um, in the late 70s and the 80s, apartheid was heating up so much that most of the 80s in South Africa um, was considered states of emergency. Um, so similar to what we've just gone through in our pandemic, um, that's a state of emergency for the United States. But in South Africa in the 80s, as you know, young people were just being killed by the hundreds, not even really making the news. Um, uh, major leaders were imprisoned and killed in these secret police societies. Nelson Mandela was put on a island, um, or lead black leadership was exiled. Uh, Tutu, I think, felt the call that he couldn't avoid um, his particular call to be back in South Africa. And so I'm assuming that then in the Anglican format, the paradigm, you have a say in where you end up as opposed to having someone, a superior, going, You're, you are now going to be posted in this city, in this country, and you, that's the only option we're giving you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's negotiated. It's okay. a lot more negotiated, more negotiated in the Anglican Church than, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, even though there's still negotiation even there. Because, you know, you have families, and even though you have bishops in the Anglican Church, which have a, a huge amount of authority in terms of placing clergy, um, Tutu could still negotiate, because you remember he is being groomed by some monks, and this monastic society carried authority as well. Um, so it wasn't just the bishop. It was these monastic uh, communities. And these monastic communities were seen in many ways like missionaries. Um, so Tutu, if he wanted to, if he really wanted to, he probably could have negotiated to stay uh, in, in England or even Europe because Tutu also worked with the World Council of Churches. But remember, he was being groomed. Um, and the community of the resurrection, these monks, um, were making sure that Tutu was aware of the needs of his own home in South Africa and how his gifts were well-suited um, to provide leadership, not just to the, to the black folks, but leadership to white folks, especially those who call themselves Christians. Michael, we are out of time for uh, this episode of Common Threads, but there are many more questions to ask you, so I'm hoping you'll be able to join us next week. Sure will. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Reverend Michael Battle. He is the author of Desmond Tutu, a spiritual biography of South Africa's confessor. Please join us again next week here on WGVU-FM.
Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Hello, I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week we began our conversation with Rev. Michael Battle. He's the author of Desmond Tutu, a spiritual biography of South Africa's confessor. And today we're going to continue our conversation. A little bit about our guest, the very Reverend Michael Battle has multiple degrees, all relating to theology and religious studies, from Duke University, Princeton Theological Seminary, and Yale. He was ordained a priest by Archbishop Tutu in 1993. Battle's clergy experience, in addition to his current church work, includes serving as vicar at multiple Episcopalian churches here in the United States and South Africa as well. He's the author of many books, including several focused on his mentor, Archbishop Tutu, and he is currently appointed as the Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society and the director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York. So we welcome once again to Common Threads, Reverend Michael Battle. Hello, Michael. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me. Certainly. Um Last week, we talked about a lot of things, and we we had to stop. Um, we talked about the three stages of mysticism, and last week you were very eloquent in describing purgation. So there are three states of mysticism, purgation, illumination, and union. And they they feature very prominently in your book about Desmond Tutu. So what I'd like to do, because <laughs> we could go quite far afield and not, not complete this list, I would, I would so appreciate it if you would talk about the stage of illumination right now. Sure. Illumination follows the first stage of Christian mysticism, which was purgation, in the sense that the fire that purgation brings to cleanse us of um, our sins, to cleanse us of myopic ways of seeing the world, or even to cleanse us from what I was claiming in Archbishop Tutu's life, from a world view of apartheid. Um, purgation, once that occurs, um, makes the scales fall from 
our eyes and makes us to see what's really there. Um, and so that's called illumination, the ability to see. The light switch cuts on and we can see who and what's in the room. And Dionysius, the, the writer of these three mystical stages, was keen on the importance of illumination because illumination accentuates human freedom and the freedom to be able to navigate um, this image of God that God has given us. Even though we are creatures, animals as human beings, God has given us a vision that we are also made in the image of God. We have the ability to cooperate, to even be mutual with God. And the early philosophers like Plato and, and what's called Neoplatonism, um, they thought that Christians were foolish to think that the creator and the creature could be mutual. So this second stage of Christian mysticism, of illumination, is really about the possibilities of joining, cooperating with God in the room, whereas before, pre-purgation, we may not have understood or seen or have been conscious of God with us. And so I apply this illumination stage to Tutu's life in this miracle that he was um, the leader of, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which for South Africa was perhaps one of the greatest um, prototypes for nation states to solve political problems. And what Tutu did was to set the table for those who, between 1960 and 1994, to come and sit and basically articulate what happened in their lives publicly. And so, for example, white police officers, if they came and sat at the table at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission during the hearings, and basically confessed what was being done in the secret police, especially to many of the black leaders, horrific things, if they would confess and bring out in the open, into the light, what was being done in secret, they could be given amnesty. And this went um, also for black leadership and black folks who also did things politically that were seen as um, violent and criminal. Um, for example, a bombing of a white church on Sunday morning. So as you can imagine, in this stage of illumination, there's a lot of um, tension um, because the claim, especially from Black uh, political leadership, has been, how could you give amnesty? How, 
how could that be justice? And going back to what I'm claiming as Tutu's mystical training, he understands justice not just based on retribution, but God's justice is more restorative. Um, and so there are two kinds of fire. One fire consumes, and another kind of fire purifies. So the fire purgation leads to this fire of illumination that's purifying and restoring the society and not trying to destroy it. So Tutu's leadership of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is what I place in that second phase of Christian mysticism of illumination. And since we're on such a roll here, and that, that is really a, a, quite a brilliant description of that part of his life and part of his work, uh, let's continue now to the third stage of union. Union is a tricky one. Um, perhaps the most famous Christian book on this stage of union is a book called The Cloud of an Unknowing, The Cloud of Unknowing. And it's, a, it's an account of a spiritual director um, counseling a disciple, and they come to the understanding of union with God as something that cannot be forced. Um, union with God is something that happens almost with your lateral brain. It's not something that we set out to do. It's something that God gives um, um, through the glimpses of the spiritual life. So, for example, the director tells the disciple, you cannot force God to make you uh, one with God. You can only make yourself available as God will come and light upon you. It's similar to C.S. Lewis um, and one of his famous ways of understanding friendship. C.S. Lewis says nobody wakes up one day and goes over and picks someone and says, you're going to be my best friend. Um, friendship is discovered. It's discovered through our history. It's discovered through loyalty and sacrifice. It can't be an unearned intimacy. And so what's important about union with God is um, we, we can't force that. We can make ourselves available to that unity with God, and that's only something God can do. God can give us glimpses of being in concert with God's will. So for Tutu, his unitive stage looks like his lateral role in his life. He's 89 years old, will be 90 on October 7th of this year. And he has become known as a sage. And his, his state of being a sage, I think, is similar to what I'm saying about friendship. Um, Tutu is discovering that his friends are not whom most people think they are. It's 
especially for us in the institutional church, many would not consider, you know, a Tibetan Buddhist monk to be our best friend. For example, with Archbishop Tutu and His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, have become two best friends. And in that latter stage, in which I call his stage of union, Tutu realizes cooperation with God takes you to places that most of us never expect. And being one with God um, doesn't have all of the trappings that we had when we were young, trying to impress others to be in the union stage is simply to be and to realize our relationships, not to take those that are familiar to us for granted, to resist the familiarity breeds contempt cliche, um, to be at home with family, especially for someone like Tutu, who travel the world constantly, and to be content, you know, where he is. And so the last stage I described in, in those ways of him being a sage and being technically what's called an elder, in which um, there were many hotspots around the world that uh, Tutu as an elder was called to come and just model um, the stage of unity, not trying to fix anyone, but just trying to be and to help other people to be. Um, but this stage of union is not something that can be forced in some unearned intimacy kind of way. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. With me today is Reverend Michael Battle, and he is the author of Desmond Tutu, a spiritual biography of South Africa's confessor. You know, Michael, it's interesting to hear you speak like that, and it was interesting to read the account of uh, the spiritual life of Desmond Tutu. And one of the things that crossed my mind is that it seems like this powerfully contemplative life that uh, Tutu lives belongs to sort of a chosen few in the Anglican tradition, that it doesn't, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that it doesn't flow down to the masses in the pews, meaning that if somebody is Episcopalian here in the United States and is drawn to this life, is it is it easy to find the mentorship that is needed to develop and flourish in a more contemplative life? as opposed to just making sure you made it uh, to uh, liturgy on Sunday mornings and, you know, uh, lived a reasonably moral and ethical life. You know, Fred, I think you're right in terms of a sociological reading of what's been going on in, in most folks' spiritual lives. But I think the apocalypse of... COVID and our pandemic um, has opened our eyes in many ways to see that, you know, these stages really are for everyone, um, that there's really no excuse not to move from um, the purgative stages of 
not doing what we know we should not do. And that goes for our vocations, for example. And you probably know of some of the research that's going on and people changing their careers after this pandemic and um, seeing more clearly the dysfunctional relationships that they have been in because people have had to be at home with each other. Um, and I think, I think pre-pandemic, we were basically going along with the flow of things. But I think um, today we have a lot more consciousness and, and perhaps can even identify with what I'm trying to teach in terms of Christian mysticism, um, that we don't have to be um, robotic and going through life. And we can now be more vocational um, and not just see ourselves with jobs. And I think Tutu, for example, he was privileged in that sense of having mentors because of the tragedy of apartheid um, that was needed to have mentors to navigate that beast. But I think for most of us who consider ourselves ordinary or normal, whatever that means today, we can see in our own lives, we go through the same struggles, maybe not on such a world stage like Tutu, but we still have those struggles of trying to move through life to become sages um, and to also see what's really there in the room and not to just subconsciously follow along. Your lives, yours and Desmond Tutu's, have intersected in, in a very powerful way. So he ordained you, he officiated your wedding, and he baptized all of your children, and you are his chaplain. Can you talk about that intersection uh, of, of the lives, of both of your lives, and specifically what it's like to be Desmond Tutu's chaplain? Yeah, I was I was this chaplain um, when I was doing my PhD dissertation and living with him um, when he was the archbishop. I was I was an informal chaplain until they were able to actually bring a formal chaplain. Um, but what was so important for me is writing a PhD dissertation and serving in the role of a chaplain really helped me to conflate the experiences of being an academic and being a priest, for example. So the work I was doing on him as a PhD student wasn't just simply academic work. I wasn't just trying to come up with a theory about Archbishop Tutu's theology. I was actually imprinting on him like a, a little duck imprints on the mother duck. I was actually being formed by the integrity and the authenticity of his life behind the scenes, um, which was powerful. You know, on, on an average day, Tutu was, was like a Trappist monk, um, kind of like Thomas Merton's religious order, because he prayed about seven times a day. And that's what the Trappist monks did, and Thomas Merton did as well. And, and to discover that most people don't know that about Tutu, and I just felt that was one of my calls. And as you, as you noted earlier in our interview, um, most of my sort of theological work has 
touched at some point on that formation that Tutu has, um, profound formation that Tutu has provided in my own life. What is Ubuntu theology? Yeah, Ubuntu um, is a worldview of sub-Saharan African peoples of various ethnicities. Um, There's a common language in sub-Saharan Africa called Bantu. And in that worldview, the word Ubuntu um, in the Western world is simply defined as human. But in the African worldview, it's so much more. Um, it's, it's the word Ubuntu carries a proverb, which goes, I am because we are, and because we are, I am. So the worldview of what it means to be human is to be interdependently human. We need each other to be human. So to be human is not uh, an isolated individual. That's not the definition of being human for sub-Saharan African people. The definition of being human is to be relational, to be in relationships. In the Western world, it's totally different. The European Enlightenment, led by famous intellectuals, philosophers like Rene Descartes, basically had the opposite proverb for what it means to be human. And that proverb was, I think, therefore I am. It was more in what we call philosophy, a solipsistic definition of humanity, self-contained. And in our world today, Fred, I think the African worldview of Ubuntu has much to say for how we get out of so many human ruts. You know, how do we get vaccines to other countries? Because logically we know that a pandemic, unless we all are vaccinated, none of us really are. And the worldview of Ubuntu also helps us with our um, civil unrest. Um, It helps us to see that, you know, no one human identity can be in control. Control has to be shared. And Political power has to be interdependent. So Ubuntu can get into a lot of different kinds of discourse. And, and I think it's, it's an important concept um, that can lead to, for example, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, not just in South Africa, but in the United States, to be able to say we need to be able to share a common identity as Americans means that we need to put out in the light what has been done in such secret places around those who have power, inherited wealth, and also the systems that still 
are in place that subjugate those who are marginalized. And you can't just keep having marginalized people. Um, Ubuntu is trying to say that unless the interdependence brings us together, we will just continue in a dysfunctional way that leads mostly to despair. In the very few minutes we have left, uh, Michael, could you tell us a little bit about Desmond Tutu's relationship with Nelson Mandela? Yeah, um, that helps me to move out of that last word, despair. <laughs> <laughs> they have they had a wonderful relationship. Um, when Mandela first came out of prison, um, he went and stayed. He spent the night with Archbishop Tutu, um, just to show you the kind of relationship they had. Um, Mandela really respected uh, Tutu, and Tutu, of course, really respected Mandela. I think Tutu understood his role, kind of like in Christian terms, to be more like a John the Baptist for Mandela, not to try to oversimplify or to make Mandela a god, although Mandela's life is kind of like a biblical ethic, uh, epic. You know, how is it that you are in prison for 26 years? Uh, when you come out of prison, you become the president of that nation state. That's like, that's like an epic story. But Mandela also understood that he was in prison and he needed people like Tutu to be able to articulate um, justice, to articulate an anti-apartheid strategy, to be able to reach out to the international world for sanctions. Mandela knew the strategic role that Tutu had. But Tutu also knew that once Mandela was free, he had to go into the shadows. Uh, he had to support the authority needed to give to someone who gave his life um, to a nation. And that's what I really admire about Tutu. At one point, Tutu had just as much fame, if not more, than Mandela, as you know about the media, out of sight, out of mind. And Tutu could have tried to be opportunistic, but Tutu always knew his place he had clarity of thought for his gifts and his role, and quickly uh, moved um, um, in the shadows to make make space for Mandela's leadership. So they had a wonderful um, relationship, and I think a great example in terms of studies and leadership. That's uh, that's very inspiring. Uh, Michael, we are out of time for this episode, but I want to thank you so much for joining us today and your contributions last week as well. Thank you so much, and thank you for supporting uh, my book. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Reverend Michael Battle, the author of Desmond Tutu, a spiritual biography of South Africa's confessor. Please join us again next week here on WGVU for Common Threads.
Summon Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.